Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. People on both sides of the political divide have expressed dissatisfaction with America's current antitrust laws. They believe these laws are too lenient, enabling big companies to squash competition and, in the case of big tech companies, exert an undue influence on the public's access to information and ability to speak. But it's not clear that antitrust hawks have proposed remedies that would actually handle these concerns. And many antitrust experts believe that maintaining America's current system is the best course for consumer welfare. To explore this debate, I'm speaking today with Joshua Wright. Josh is a law professor at George Mason University, as well as the executive director of the Global Antitrust Institute and a former member of the Federal Trade Commission. He's the co-author of the recent National Affairs article, A Time for Choosing, The Conservative Case Against Weaponizing Antitrust. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. What problem is antitrust law meant to solve? So that's a good place to start, Jim. Antitrust, um, it's funny, when I came to the profession uh, in the late 90s, antitrust was sort of thought of as a you know, specialist corner of, of corporate law. Um, when I, when I came on the academic job market, people told me, don't tell anyone you, don't, you do antitrust. Antitrust is dead. Nobody knows what it means anyway. Tell them you do, you do corporate law. Um, and the, the idea is I think that's been flipped on a, it, its, its head a little bit and thus making it a, a great place to start. What antitrust is designed to do is to deal with the acquisition of monopoly power and Primarily, what it is meant to do is to sort of be a, a backstop uh, to sort of regulate and police the creation and abuse of, of monopoly power in ways that harm consumers and competition. Uh, that's its sort of role as interpreted by the Supreme Court. Uh, at least it's been the goal of the antitrust law since the late 70s. And I think you've got all sorts of fun calls to do different things uh, with it now, which make it a, a sort of a, a, a more exciting topic than when I came into the field in the, in the 90s. But, uh, but here we are. And uh, oftentimes you hear people talk about antitrust. It's in the context of breaking up a company. That seems like a, a fairly severe remedy. But there's other remedies other than breaking up companies, right? Right. So antitrust, um, you know, when I, when I teach antitrust to my law students, we sort of divide the world of antitrust really into three parts. There's, uh, there's cartels, there's mergers and acquisitions, and then there's uh, monopolization or single firm conduct. Um, so for cartels, think sort of naked price fixing, you know, gas station owners walk across the street, say, hey, I'll, I'll raise my price if you raise yours. This is sort of the criminal corner of antitrust, you know, sort of agreements between competitors not to compete, um, where mostly uh, the remedies are uh, fines, jail time, uh, sort of thing, things like that. In mergers and acquisitions, it's prohibiting a proposed merger. 
um, 99% of modern um, merger enforcement and antitrust is sort of uh, before the acquisition has happened. So we're not breaking anything up. We mm -hmm. are uh, prohibiting a proposed transaction most of the time. Uh, there are some exceptions to that, obviously. And then the sort of third bucket is what I described as monopolization. In Europe, they call it abuse of dominance. But it's, you know, think the DOJ suit against Microsoft at the turn of, century, of the century, the DOJ's case against Google, uh, the FTC's new case against uh, Facebook. Uh, these are cases that are brought against a, a firm, usually a large firm, um, that allege that the single firm, not with help from its friends, like in the merger context or the cartel context, but sort of on its own, has done something uh, to abuse monopoly power and hinder competition. Uh, yeah, and in those cases are where we get breakup remedies discussed. Sorry to, right. to actually answer your question. Those are the cases, that third bucket, where we sometimes get um, structural remedies, you know, breakups uh, proposed. And sometimes we don't. Right, so you take the DOJ suit against Google um, that they just filed earlier this year. That case is largely about search distribution. It's about payments that Google makes on the Android ecosystem and on the Apple ecosystem to get prominent placement for Google to be the default search engine. Um, that case isn't about breaking anybody up. If, if a court finds those, uh, those contracts to be unlawful, there'll be an injunction so they can't enter those types of contracts. And whenever one thinks about the substantive merits of the case, those just sort of aren't about uh, breaking up firms. Those remedies are available in extreme cases. They happen from time to time. Uh, but most of antitrust really is not about breaking up large firms. I mean, one reason that I asked that, I do want to spend just you know a few minutes here at the beginning trying to just you know sort of define what this is. Because when I listen to some and... And as you know, one reason we're talking about antitrust law is, is in the context of big tech. And we'll talk about these companies and uh, some people who really would like to break them up. They have breakup plans uh, for Amazon. They have a breakup plan for Google, uh, for, uh, for Facebook. Um, they've kind of forgotten about Microsoft, uh, you know, maybe Apple. And it seems to me that that remedy um, to break somebody up is a... Uh, is, a, is a pretty severe remedy. And I'm wondering if we were to suddenly over the next five to seven years break up four or five companies, all of which are you know, the largest in the United States by market cap and in the world, that, I mean, would that be the most, you know, the most mind boggling thing ever to happen in antitrust? I mean, one of those companies would be a pretty big deal, but people who would like to start carving off pieces of each one combined, I mean, that, that would be historic, wouldn't it? It would be historic. And, you know, and we can, we can talk about it being wrongheaded as well, sort of, sort of later, but I don't think it's, I mean, for lots of reasons, it would be both historic and wrongheaded. I mean, one is that um, we're having this chat sort of virtually in the middle of a, a pandemic and a time in which, uh, you know, a lot of people are, are, are benefiting more than ever from the goods and services provided by some of these firms. Um, but sort of on top of the atmospherics, um, you know, the world's most successful companies and most innovated companies are, are, are here in the United States where in large part our antitrust regime uh, has avoided 
ex-ante regulation of, of these firms, at, at least through a competition policy lens. It's avoided sort of structural breakups of these firms um, as opposed to sort of the, uh, the European approach, um, the approach in China. And there are, there are calls certainly to break these firms up, right? Just like you have in, in uh, Europe and China where the firms, where the firms don't exist. Um, and it's an interesting thing uh, in, in, in part, I think this environment of calling for, for the breakups. I, to cut to the chase of the, the law on this stuff a, a little bit, um, one of the reasons why it is incredibly unlikely, no matter who's in the administration, no matter who's appointed to these jobs, is at the end of the day, what the, one of the sort of key signature features of the US antitrust system, and, and this is one of the first things I explained to my students as well, uh, because they said, well, Europe, Europe sues Google and Europe sued, you know, they find Google $5 billion and Amazon and they'll do Apple and they'll presumably do, you know, Facebook and everybody else, right? Um, what about the U.S. system? Well, one of the sort of signature, what's the features, I guess I'll call it, of the U.S. system is the U.S. antitrust laws do not punish competing successfully to become uh, large, right? If you, if you build a better mousetrap and even if you become the monopolist, um, there's a famous passage in uh, the Supreme Court case in uh, Trinco. It's a passage by Justice Scalia, which is, uh, reads a little bit like a, an, an ode to the successful uh, company who earns monopoly power and gets to charge the monopoly price uh, because it outcompeted its, its rivals. We don't have uh, a system in the U.S. where we make an antitrust cause of action out of successful innovation. They do have that in China and they do have that in Europe. And they've got a, a more sort of hands-on ex-ante regulatory framework that they use to control the inner workings of these companies. Because when coming out of the gate, the things that you do are unlawful, in those countries, you sort of start the game in a bargaining position with the regulator, right? Um, it's illegal to be the monopolist. Now we're just going to bargain over what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. It's sort of a... a uh, a, a culture of consent with the regulatory authorities. In the United States, uh, we punish abuse of monopoly power, right? If you, if you built a better mousetrap, but then, you know, you climb to the top of the ladder and then you kick it down or you burn it down or some such, we, we have antitrust cases for that. And the government prevails in some of those antitrust cases uh, when they can prove that the firm's a monopolist and that it's harmed competition. US, the, the government can win those cases and it does from time to time. But you've got to go to court to do it. We've got judicial review um, in a meaningful way in this country uh, of the government's theories in those cases. You know, you cannot just sort of shout in a crowded room that you think the company's big and bad uh, right. and, and break them up here. You've got to go to court, prove monopoly power, prove anti-competitive conduct, prove that the companies are engaged in conduct that... Uh, abuses monopoly power, something more than uh, competition on the merits. Right. And you just can't say, you just can't say Google has 89.2% of the browser market. They are a monopoly. Therefore, ipso facto, they are bad. Here's now we must do something. Right. You can't do that here and you can in other jurisdictions. And I think that that's a, a feature, not a bug of the U.S. system. It's one of the reasons you know, it's a complicated world and there's more than one thing going on here, but it's one of the reasons 
I think why you've got an environment here, at least in terms of antitrust regulation, that's been more hospitable uh, to innovation and more hospitable to hosting these companies than other jurisdictions uh, around around the world. Uh, and the antitrust antitrust institutions are obviously one part of a complex ecosystem of regulation, uh, but they're an important part, and they're an increasingly important part. Um, and so you can't. Uh, no, you cannot just say, look, this firm's got monopoly power. Uh, and then, you know, where do I go to get my remedy? You've got right. to prove that they've used that power in a, in a, in a harmful way, uh, th- not just any harmful way, but a harmful way that has reduced competition. And but that's that appro- where right. these cases often go to die. Right. But that, that, appro- that wasn't always the American approach, right? No, the American approach really flipped in the late 70s, 1977 in particular. But the, the sort of story is a little bit of a perfect storm in the U.S. antitrust system where you had, you know, if you, if you read the cases from 1890 and, you know, through the 1960s, essentially um, everything's illegal all of the time, right? So Justice Potter, uh, Potter Stewart in... Uh, merger case in the 60s, Vaughn's Grocery says the, the only thing, uh, the only consistency, the sole consistency in Section 7, you know, that's the Clayton Act merger statute in Section 7 cases, that the government always wins. There's merger cases merging to 4% uh, where the government wins. Um, everything is illegal. Resale price, maintenance, any form of tying, selling left and right shoes together, Everything's illegal, and it's just a matter of prosecutorial discretion, right? Who, who does the government want to sue today? And in the 70s, you know, a, couple, a lot of things happen at once. There's a big explosion, sort of Chicago school economics, among others. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a UCLA Bruin, so, so in UCLA as well, um, you know, economists start studying some of this, this stuff, exclusive dealing, tying, mergers, et cetera, and saying, well, wait, wait a minute. Uh, some of this stuff actually ends up being a way in which firms compete. And we learn more in economics about when these things are pro-competitive, when they're anti-competitive, because sometimes they are, but not always. And people start revisiting the antitrust system that says all of this stuff's illegal all the time. You know, Bork most famously uh, and he gets, you know, the credit and the, the blame for some of this, both from the right and, and, and the left. Um, but sort of everybody revisited the antitrust system. They, the Supreme Court cases in the 70s that look at the antitrust system of the 60s and prior aren't partisan decisions. They're nine nothing decisions. It's Scalia and RBG saying none of this makes sense. And sort of overhauling the antitrust system to say, you know what we're going to do, uh, instead of using the antitrust system to do six things at once, we're not going to use antitrust to um, protect small business and the environment and democracy. We have other tools to do those things, right? I can think right. economic inequality is really important and also think antitrust is not the right instrument to deal with it, right? Because if I maximize six things with one tool, you know, maybe I don't do it so well. And that really was the history of antitrust. It was um, doing more, more harm than good. This was Bork's famous antitrust paradox, right? It was a consumer protection regime that was hurting consumers, right? Um, and so you get this big revolution in the law in the 70s um, that sort of changes the tune. And a lot of the modern calls to reinvigorate antitrust or what have you, I, I you know, uh, 
gotten some trouble for describing all of this as hipster antitrust. Uh, mostly it was, a, it was meant to be a, a sort of good natured, good humored rib, ribbing at the idea that we were, um, you know, most of the calls were, you know, antitrust is, um, you know, cool, too cool to do economic analysis anymore. We know the stuff's illegal without thinking about it too hard. It's illegal just because big is bad. And we're going to bring antitrust back to the 60s or the or the 40s or the 30s or earlier. Well, right? it's, well it certainly seems that way. It certainly seems that the re, that you said, that, you know, antitrust, we're not going to use it to do six things. Well, now it seems like they do want to do maybe six things is actually, you know, if actually it's more than six things. So we, we want we think there's all these problems in the economy. And we so we and we view these large technology firms as being central to many of these problems. And so we need to employ antitrust. We need to break them up. Uh, and if under the sort of, you know, doctrine that you've just spent the last couple of minutes describing, if that, if, if we can't do that, that doctrine, then we need to create a new doctrine, maybe going back to the old doctrine, maybe creating a new one that allows us to do six different things. Uh, if you're worried about corporate power in general, if you're worried about inequality, if you're worried about hate speech, moderation, uh, political bias, we have a tool for you, and it's called antitrust, and we need to we need to wield it uh, vigorously and frequently. I think that's I think that's where we're at, right? Yeah, I think it's where we're at, and 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 let me say a, a, a couple of things there. I mean, I think. That there has been a call on the left to use antitrust to put the government in the role of product design decisions and contract decisions and pricing decisions of private companies. There's always there's always been that, right? I think in antitrust, left, right, and center, there was you know there was a consensus that held that this sort of revolution to the consumer welfare standard, the modern approach was a good thing. Um, you could get me, I'm, you know, um, you know, uh, certainly a, a conservative thinker in antitrust and, 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 uh, you know, a respected progressive thinker, you know, uh, and, and insert any of them, them here, Hubert Herb Hovenkamp or Steve Salop or, or, or whoever. Um, and we would disagree on individual cases but sort of agree on the standard and how to measure it and what the theories are and what sort of evidence would change each other's minds, right? And that consensus, I think, is, you know, starting to fray. It's, it's sort of where the, the, the battle line is now. And it's really not just because there's a movement on the political left to do more with antitrust. That, that movement's always been there, Um and, you know, you can think of, at least in the political world, you can think of sort of, you know, Liz Warren, who wants to, you know, ban, you know, if you're Amazon, you can't have a platform and sell products. You can't be a grocery store and sell private labels or whatever, um, or go back to the merger policy of the 60s, you know, you know, bright line market share rules right. for everything. It's not shocking that progressives don't like big, powerful corporations right none of that huge influence that's not that's not like a sh you're not you're not that 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 this that this that this sort of uh you know that this energy to do something about these big tech that it comes from progressive that's not shocking that's not shocking i i will say some of these groups i you know um certainly the antitrust discussion has become more popular i think it's more politically salient 
you hear candidates talk about it, you know, people care. I think young people interact with these companies a lot more than they did with standard oil or the railroads back in the, you know, back in the day. And so I think a lot of those voices on, you know, sort of voicing that, that progressive vision of antitrust, um, have been wildly successful in getting their views sort of onto big platforms. So, uh, but the vo- the message isn't new. Uh, it's louder, and I think it's been more successful uh, in in some ways. And 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 so um, m- m- much to the much to their credit, uh, in their effort to sort of get their message out. What's new, and I think interesting, and and, and for me disappointing is the conservative sort of joining of, of that movement, right? It is very difficult to disentangle the policy proposals, uh, very different motives to get there. Um, but the policy pro, uh, proposals of, say, Josh Hawley and Liz Warren are identical, right? Um, you know, there's a, an understandable conservative angst about large tech companies uh, who, you know, have... Um, in, in their view, sort of, you know, discriminate against conservatives or uh, are sort of politically biased inside the company or, or in the company's decision making. And so you get this sort of combination of anti-tech sentiment out of the um, some segment of, of the right in any event. Um, and I, you know, I think of I think of Holly maybe as the, the, the largest voice of that group. But more recently, you know, Ted, Ted Cruz comes to mind. Uh, Ken Buck in the house comes to mind um, and you know a handful of academics as, as well and you really can't it's sort of the uh, the the two ends of the circle uh, of the line join in a circle right and it, it's really difficult to, di- to distinguish and so you get conservatives now calling for I think for understandable emotional reasons um, the idea that what well, what well, well, goodness if we're not going to use the government to control uh, companies that don't like us, then, then then what's the point? And I think there are a lot of good answers to that from a conservative perspective. And it's an important time for conservatives who believe in the rule of law and believe in markets and um, don't want to have uh, the federal government making product design decisions at Google or Apple or Facebook or Amazon. Um, you know, this is a discussion that has to happen uh, on the right, and I and I think it's a really important one to have, and that I think is new right. in antitrust discourse. Well, I, well, that, I mean, let's just take the you know the sort of the, the biggest sort of punitive measure, which would be to break these companies up. If you're worried about bias, I'm not. How how would that situation change if there were if if you know Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp were separate companies, and you chopped. YouTube off of Google, and maybe we had, I don't know, at four different Google North, South, East, little Googlets. Um, I, 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 does that, does that solve the bias problem? I mean, what do we, what, what is, how, do, what is the mechanism there that doing that would then stop, would then influence their, their moderation decisions? Well, it's, it's a, it's a great question. And, well, hold aside for a moment um, the sort of, I think, fatal problems that those sorts of suits, would, that if they went directly after content moderation on antitrust grounds, they would all die um, on the First Amendment, right? All of those suits will fail. Um, and so if, you- if Mark Zuckerberg wants, would want Facebook to be woke Facebook 
and be uh, only allowing um, only allowing left of center opinion on Facebook, and you couldn't have a a pro Republican or pro Trump page. He could do that, right? He could certainly do it. He could certainly do it without interruption from the antitrust laws. Right, right. From that, from that perspective, he, I mean, it might be a terrible business decision. Right. Uh, all this other stuff, but I mean, but he could do that from that from the antitrust perspective. He absolutely could do it from the antitrust perspective, and whether it would be wise, business wise, or politically, or whatever, um, you know, I'll leave that to people smarter than me. But from an antitrust perspective, sort of, absolutely. The antitrust laws are not there to micromanage the competitive process. They are there to police abuses that create monopoly power, right? Um, and, you know, at a visceral level, I think you've got critics of the modern antitrust system, sort of the, the one I've described, look and they see a big attractive set of remedial tools, right? You can, you can use antitrust to the nuclear option, right? You can break up firms. Um, you can, you know, interfere with pricing or design decisions. You can do a lot of things. You've got this sort of big, attractive set of remedies. And um, I think there's some. I think I think there are some politicians who would like to really, really micromanage uh, font font size, uh, <laughs> infinite scrolling. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, once you get into it, you know, they, they, you really do see how they want to micromanage these companies. And you know, you know, the look and feel of the pages. And now they're worried about, you know, they're, they're too they're too addictive. It really seems to be an ever expanding list of measures they would they would they would like to take against these firms. And, and this is the um, and certainly when I when I when I talk to conservatives that I think are you know have concerns about the role of of the big big tech companies, which is you know I spend a lot of time doing. Um, one of the things, the challenges I, I sort of try to offer back is, you know, most of what they are calling for is to enlarge the, is, you know, in the name of uh, defending against a uh, monopolist, it is sort of empowering the biggest monopolist of them all, the federal government, um, to run these tech firms. And, you know, on a purely instrumental level, I mean, you know, for conservatives, I find this a little bit baffling, right? So we spend all of this intellectual energy and capital on judges, right? We put, um, you know, we point all of these judges, um, fill the Article Three courts uh, with judges, and then make a bunch of antitrust proposals that say, let's take antitrust out of the courts and empower bureaucrats and federal agencies, right? Right now, and again, on a on a sort of purely instrumental point right now operated by, by Democrats um, and give them the power to make, to make these decisions. And I think sort of just on the purely political part of it, I think is a uh, remarkably, remarkably short-sighted, but on a philosophical end, um, you know, the calls really harken back to me for an invitation for the antitrust approach of, you know, the sort of 1960s and earlier where everything is unlawful as much as people want to make these proposals about big tech. And this is another point I, I think is important to raise. Um, you know, the collateral damage is across the economy. I mean, even 
I think the approaches aimed at big tech are, are, are sort of wrongheaded. But if you take a lot of these proposals um, to change merger law, to forbid vertical integration by firms, uh, to end private labels, for example, a lot of these have negative consequences across the entire economy. Um, they're not cabined into tech firms. Um, they're not limited to tech firms in any sort of real sense. Uh, the damage is everywhere across the economy. And it's an invitation right now being offered by a sort of one wing of conservatives and sort of one wing of, of progressives to eliminate the rule of law from antitrust by sort of operating in a world where everything's declared unlawful and we empower the federal government to sort of mostly decide what they want to prosecute and what they don't and you know when they on what terms they want to settle with these companies what you want amazon services to look like what you want google services to look like and you know that to me sounds like the regulatory approach that is an embraced um I mean, it's worse than the regulatory uh, approach that's been embraced in Europe. It's closer to the Chinese approach than the European approach, to be honest with you. And that, that I think, is where the sort of the rubber hits the road and where the, the fight is to be had. And it's a fight worth having. If I, mean, if I were to think of, like, what are the greatest sort of you know, kind of conservative pro-market policy victories over the past 40 years? Look, um, you know, tax rates, they go up, they go, they go down. Uh, if I think of like two really sort of lasting victories so far, I would point uh, to that we have, at least up to this moment, a fairly lightly regulated Internet. So the digital economy, an ever growing part of the total economy, fairly lightly regulated. And then the antitrust, the change in antitrust doctrine uh, 40 years ago. And I'm always shocked right now about the 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 willingness to chuck both of those overboard because you have some content moderation issues with these companies yeah i think that's right and it's been disappointing to watch i think that there is um you know fights to be had and um debates to be had for conservatives among themselves about sort of the approach to the rule, you know, what it means to respect the rule of law. Um, I think for some, the idea is if we do not have an interpretation of the antitrust laws that allows us to control private firms, then it's not worth, I don't know, winning elections or, so, or something like that. And I just think, uh, you know, at some point, if the lodestar of, you know, a philosophy of judicial interpretation or regulation or anything is, you know, sh short-term revenge. It's not, it's, not, it's not a very intellectually interesting lodestar. And, you know, these companies do things that um, upset me. They do things that upset Democrats too. Um, you know, but the antitrust laws, I think, have been successful in large part in the United States. And one of the reasons why, from an economic perspective, we have those companies here um, is precisely because 
we've had that the approach to regulation and the approach to antitrust that you just described, right? The approach has been, we use these tools as a backstop for abuses. They have an appropriate role and, and we use them and the government wins cases. Some of the critics of the modern antitrust system now, um, and you'll see undoubtedly in the next year, you know, swaths of, of, you know, proposed legislation. The, the, the House put out a, a proposal through the judiciary that um, basically proposed to overturn every major Supreme Court decision post-1977. Um, and, you know, the, a part I can't help but bring up, they, they proposed to overturn a law review article. I'm mostly jealous because I wish that somebody would propose <laughs> to overturn my law review articles, but they, they, you know, they proposed to, I don't even know what it means to overturn a law review article, but they, they want to do it. Um, and, you know, that's the discussion that's being had is sort of undoing all of that in taking antitrust uh, away from the judiciary that quite frankly fixed it um, and into the hands of bureaucrats that swing from one political party to another. And this, um, I think, is a dangerous vision for antitrust. I think it is a dangerous vision for how we think about regulating markets uh, and brings us you know, much closer in line with sort of something between what Europe and China do. And I, and I think we could expect uh, the same results. And I think if you look at the way our economy performs, you look at the surplus, the, the sort of the benefits that accrue to Americans because those tech companies are here and we can use their services. Um, these are huge amounts of consumer surplus, huge amounts. And, you know, here we are sort of succumbing to the invitation to sort of tinker with them in the name of on the right, I think sort of short-term political vengeance. Um, you know, and on the left, sort of the same instinct that's been around for a long time. Do you think if we had this conversation, if we have this conversation in four years, that you, we will have seen any major action against any of the largest technology companies that involves them selling off a significant business? That's a great question. Um, I'd bet the under. Um, <laughs> I, I'd bet the under. And, here, and here's why. The Supreme United States antitrust doctrine is what it is right now. You and we still have meaningful judicial review. This is the reason why, on the left and the right, you see all of the attention paid to legislative change. Right, they're they're not going to win in the court. the The DOJ will bring its case against Google. Uh, the FTC has a Facebook case where you know maybe they can convince a court to spin off WhatsApp or Instagram. I'm skeptical. Um, that those are good cases. Um, but neither of them is sort of the big breakup affect the business model case that um, I think sort of proponents of a new of a new antitrust are looking for. Uh, but you know my, my money is that the government loses both of those cases for what it's worth. Um, but those sorts of cases exist. I think that the hope for the antitrust reformers lies, not in the courts, um, but in Congress. And I, I don't know, maybe I've been in DC too long, but uh, you know, I sort of always bet the under if someone tells me the revolution is coming from Congress. So um, I don't think we're gonna see 
legislation that undoes the consumer welfare standard. I, I do think you'll see some antitrust legislation. You know, you'll get bigger budgets for the agencies. Um, you know, I think, you, you know, maybe you get tinkering around the margins with a presumption here or a presumption there. But, uh, you know, I don't think that you're going to see a regulatory antitrust revolution via Congress. I think it's going to have to be done through the courts. And I'm skeptical. Um, my, my, my sort of silver lining of hope watching some of these discussions happen is um, you've got to win in the Article Three courts. And that means you've got to have proof, not just political grievances. Um, and, you know, I don't think they've got that. My guest today has been Joshua Wright. Josh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. 